0: Um, As many of you know, uh, Carrie and I had the privilege of flying out to Denver a week and a half ago to go to our oldest daughter's college graduation. So she's now a college graduate. And then um, she went to Washington, D.C. this last week for her last kind of final class, and now she's driving home today with her fiancé and his dad are driving to Prineville. So uh, it's been quite a, a week and a half, and about... 36 hours or so after we took off and uh, flew out to Denver, uh, we're texting with the kids and we got this uh, text that um, Daisy just started throwing up at the Wilbers' house. Thank you, Wilbers, for hosting our. You didn't make him sick, but thanks for host. Thanks for being kind about. <laughs> I hope. Did you guys get sick? Oh, thank you. Um, so we're uh, we're 1,200 miles away and. Um, our littlest one is throwing up, and within a few hours, our biggest one starts throwing up, and um, the other sister starts throwing up. So the, the, uh, the stomach flu landed at our home, and Carrie and I are in Denver. And if you know Carrie, you know that instantly her first response to that is, I want to be home with my kids and I want to be able to hold their hair back as they throw up and clean up after them and bring them their barf bucket and get them whatever they need and make sure that they have all the medicines they need and all that stuff. So she's, she's going mama bear, but it's, you know, she's not like, fly me home right now. She's doing, okay, Caleb has got it under control. Hallie's there. They got it under control. And everything's, everything's good. But she's, I mean, if you know her and if you're a mom, you're just thinking, I want to be there. I want to be there to take care of my kids. Because what's the first thing you say when you get sick like that? Mommy, right? And guess what my response was? And this is a confession, okay? My response, on the other hand, was, I hope it gets through all of them before we get home. (laughs) I mean, that's just like instant, like, okay, let's let's be practical about this. We're not going to be home. Might as well just get it through and get it over with, get all the kids taken care of, and uh, they'll be just fine. So that's a little bit of a confession. But it's also... Strange that the technology isn't working this morning. Sorry. <clears throat> so, that's a, a little bit of a, conf- a f- confession and then a picture of, of really like the difference between my wife and I. She's compassionate, and I um, am lacking in compassion in comparison with her. And this morning, as we look into Matthew chapter 8, we read Isaiah 52 and 53. Um, But as we look at Matthew chapter 8, we'll we'll go back to Isaiah and and look what's there in a few minutes. But I would like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 where we look at the heart of Jesus as a compassionate Savior, one who's much more compassionate than I am, uh, who's more, uh, my wife takes after Jesus in this respect a lot more than I do. In Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 14, here's what happens. When Jesus... Entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, before we jump into this story in particular and really look at Jesus' compassion towards us and towards all, I want to back up and, and take a 30,000-foot view, if, if you will, for a few moments on the book of Matthew and what the writer Matthew, who is one of Jesus' disciples, also called Levi, a former tax collector, wrote the book of Matthew. And he wrote it very Thoughtfully. Like he put things in place to make a point. And it's helpful for us at times to kind of look look at how he structured his gospel to see really what he's trying to convey to us. So you'll recall that in chapters five through seven, we have Jesus' famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which is really Jesus giving us a picture of life in the kingdom. He's saying, if you follow me, if you're a kingdom citizen, this is what life is going to look like for you in chapters 5 through 7. This is the life of a disciple. This is discipleship. And then Jesus comes down from the mountain at the end of chapter 7 and going into chapter 8, he begins and enters into his public ministry. And it's a ministry in the book of Matthew that begins with a series of actually 10 miracles. We're going to look at 10 miracles over the course of the next, I don't know, 10 months maybe, Um, but as we go through these, you'll see that these are grouped together very thoughtfully to make a point, to make different points throughout. Unlike the other Gospels that kind of spread the miracles out, Matthew takes all these miracles and he packs them here into this first segment of Jesus' ministry, and this These first three miracles that we see in chapter 8 are are a triad and they go together. So the first one we looked at in verses 1 through 4 where Jesus meets a leper and he cleanses the leper by touching him, reaching out, putting his hand on this unclean man and cleansing him with a touch. In verses 5 through 13, we meet, as we met last week and, and Joe preached, and thank you Joe, great job by the way. He meets a Gentile, a Roman centurion, and this man's servant, who's also very likely a Gentile and a Roman soldier, is sick. And Jesus, without a touch, he doesn't touch anybody. He doesn't even go to the centurion's home, but he speaks a word. And his authoritative word is enough to heal this man. So he heals a Gentile with a word. And then finally, in this first story of Peter's mother-in-law, we see him with a touch again, reaching out and touching this woman and healing her. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that these three miracles taken together are three miracles that Jesus performs for three people who would be considered outsiders, These were not the elite people in the society. These were not people who were central to the the society of Israel. We have an unclean, untouchable leper. You shouldn't even be around this person. You certainly shouldn't be touching him. He was an outsider by virtue of his physical condition. And then we have an unclean Gentile, a man that looks at Jesus and said, I'm not even worthy for you to come underneath my roof which was the case in, in Israel. Good Jews, upright Jews, Jews who wanted to remain clean wouldn't go into the home of a Gentile. Here's an unclean Gentile soldier who was an outsider by virtue of his ethnicity. And then we have a woman who in this society was unclean simply based on her sex. Just the fact that she was a woman made her an outsider of sorts. So... Within this triad of miracles, at the very center, at the very center, you see the center story is this story of the Gentile centurion. At the very center, Jesus does something that he will never do again in the, in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you look at verse 10, here's what he does. It says that Jesus marveled. Now, you have a lot of people marveling at Jesus, Wow, look at the things he did. Look at his miracles. Look at his teaching. They're marveling at him. But one time in the book of Matthew, it says that Jesus marveled. Jesus was blown away. Jesus had to take a step back. Why? Because of this centurion's faith. He says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. So we should probably pay attention if it's something that Jesus only did once. Like, okay, that probably means something here. He only did it once. And here's what he says as a result in verse 11. Joe talked about this last week. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And here's what Jesus is saying. I have come to bring outsiders in and push the insiders to the outside. Now, we can better understand kind of what's taking place if we visualize, actually, the temple, or the architecture of the temple. I, I want to give you just, this is an artistic illustration of what Herod's temple, which was the temple in Jesus' day, would have looked like. You can see just the massive size of it. Down, uh, down below, you can see like trees, and you can see uh, uh, the rest of Jerusalem, the city itself. And, and those are houses. So this, this was dominant in the landscape. It was Massive. And if you go inside the temple, you know that at the very inside of the temple, this is a, a, just an illustration of how it was broken up. At the very inside of the temple, over on the left to the, to the top there, sort of to the top, you have a, a square, it's actually a cubic room called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the presence of God was said to dwell. And only one Jewish man could go into that room one time a year on the Day of Atonement. It was the high priest. This was the center of God's presence with Israel. And then if you went out from the Holy of Holies, you had the most holy place, which was a place that only priests could go. And you, had the, you can see the court of the priests around that, where sacrifices were offered. And then around that, you had the court of Israel, which was also called the court of men. This was a, this was a part of the temple that only pure Jewish men could come to. Over on the right, you see the court of the women, this is a, a place of the temple that only pure Jewish women could come into, but no further. They could not go into the court of men. And then the largest part of the temple, that outer court, was called the court of the Gentiles. And this was, was a place for God-fearing non-Jewish people to come and to worship Yahweh of Israel. And if, you, if you can imagine it as a... As a As a group of concentric circles, at the very middle you have God's presence in the Holy of Holies and only clean Jewish priests could go there. And on out, the the court of the men and then the court of the women and then the court of the Gentiles and these concentric circles going out from the presence of God. You go outside the temple and there's the last circle and that's where everybody else can be. Outside the temple was the place for people like lepers. People who were unclean, people who were outside, people who had no hope of coming into the presence of God. And these circles of proximity to God were based on religious, sexual, ethnic, ritual purity. And when Jesus steps down from his pulpit, it's important for us to notice that he doesn't step off, of, out of, off the mountain that he delivers this sermon and goes straight to the Holy of Holies and just hang out with the high priest. This is my dude. He's the only one that I'll talk to. Where does Jesus go? He goes straight to the outsiders. He positions himself at the very margins of these concentric circles of proximity to God. And and from those margins, he moves from the outside in and he brings people with him. He begins at the very outskirts of the margins of polite society outside of the walls of the temple to compassionately touch an unclean leper and when he cleanses that leper he says go now to the temple go to the priests. take the sacrifices so that you can now return not just to your family but to the worshiping community you can come in and then the next person he meets as he moves more towards the center as he comes from the outside he comes to the court of the gentiles meets a Gentile, a Roman God-fearer, a man of faith, one of those myriads and myriads of people that Jesus will draw in from east and west to recline at his table, the table of the Messiah, the very center of God's presence. And then Jesus moves in from the court of the Gentiles and he meets now a woman. Instead of distancing himself from her, he actually seeks her out, he touches her, on the hand, which, by the way, for a a male Jewish rabbi in those days to touch a woman that was not his wife, not a great thing to do. And yet Jesus does it, a forbidden gesture, it extends kindness and compassion to one who would normally go unnoticed and forgotten. And what Jesus is doing here is summarized well by the Apostle Paul and Galatians chapter 3 when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free there's no male and female for you are all or one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. Dale Bruner's a, a scholar a theologian he was one of my college professors and he puts it this way he writes through his opening miracles, these three miracles, Matthew says that our Lord begins with the people with whom we usually end. He begins with the people with whom we usually end. Jesus' public ministry mirrors his sermon then. It's, it's like he's actually going to practice now what he's just finished preaching. And how does his sermon begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are the ones being persecuted. Blessed are the pure in heart. So on his way, if you will, to the holy of holies, Jesus goes straight to the least of these and brings them along with him. He tells them and shows them that they too have access to Yahweh of Israel, that they too are welcome, that they too will be made whole those who've been on the outside are now being welcomed to the inside and those who are on the inside like the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the teachers of Israel those who are on the inside are going to find themselves on the outside because the Messiah is in the business of bringing outsiders in and and seating them as guests of honor at his feast in the kingdom of heaven and he removes those in the center to the margins it says in verse 12 the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness outsiders will be insiders insiders will be outsiders and the categories that we usually define to 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 define for ourselves who is favored by god will be destroyed and crushed jesus shows us that god casts his net wide and builds a house that is spacious and welcoming rather than restricted and limited. So now, that's the 30,000-foot view. There's probably a little turbulence there. Did you feel it? You know, Let's land a little bit and come back to these verses where we meet this woman, Peter's mother-in-law. Now, as I was thinking about this story... Um, I want to remind you that every week we have a prayer meeting at First Baptist Church, every Thursday evening, and, and as this kind of small group of prayer warriors gathers to pray for the church, one of the, one of the central themes that we often pray for is just simple physical and health issues. So we often pray for you. And, and, and sometimes, I'll be honest with this, sometimes I struggle with this. Not praying for you, but praying for, okay, somebody's knee, or somebody's hip, or somebody's ankle, or somebody's surgery, which, which is great. Let's pray for those things. But, but I want to say sometimes, shouldn't, shouldn't our prayers be bigger? Like, shouldn't we be praying big kingdom vision prayers for the gospel to go to the end of the world, and people to come to faith, and for there to be revival? And the answer to that question is yes. That's certainly true. However, I think in these two short verses, Jesus actually puts a crosshair right on my pride, and he takes a shot at it. He says, you think you're so big, you think you're, you're so important that you need to pray for all these things. And let me tell you that I care about your most mundane needs. I care about your fevers and your sore teeth and your neck surgeries and your throwing up and, and all these things. I care about them and so should we. Because really this is a pretty domestic, pretty everyday need. Here's a a woman who has a fever. We're not told how severe the fever is. We're just told that she has a fever. The account doesn't give a lot of fanfare to the event itself. Simply that Jesus noticed her, Jesus touched her, and the fever ran away. It was instantly banished from her. And the story reminds us that Jesus meets us all where we're at and nothing is too small to escape his concern, to escape his attention, to escape his care. He cares when we don't feel well. He cares when we're sick. He cares when we have a surgery coming up. He cares when we're throwing up or when we're wrestling with a fever or when we're dealing with chronic pain. And we see in the story that, of course, Jesus doesn't just care, but he actually has the authority and the power to heal her. And it's one of those things where she's got a fever. I don't know how serious it was, but the fever goes away. And, you know, when your fever goes away, you kind of want to sit in bed for a couple more days, right? And her convalescence doesn't last very long. It's quick. She's up and moving. And it says, she rose and began to serve him. And I've often wondered, did Jesus just heal her because he wanted a sandwich? I don't think so. But she was the one that was going to feed them. But She instantly began serving him. The healing was complete and full. And interestingly, both Mark and Luke in their gospel accounts recount the same story, but they're a little bit different. In In both Mark and Luke, people come to Jesus and tell him about the woman's fever. Here in this account, no one asks him for anything. He just notices her and decides to intervene, decides to have grace upon her. In Mark and Luke, when the woman is healed, the text actually says that she began, she got up and began to serve them. The pronoun is plural, it's them. Here, it says that she began to serve him. Now, the difference is small, but I think the difference in these accounts is important for two reasons. And the first is that Jesus heals us not because we've done anything spectacular or good for him. When Jesus heals us, when he shows up, when he touches us, when he intervenes in our lives, he doesn't do it because we did something great for him or because we prayed hard enough or because we had enough faith. Jesus simply heals out of the goodness and the compassion of his heart. Amen? Second, when Jesus heals, the appropriate response is to serve him immediately. When Jesus intervenes in our life, when he gives us grace, when he forgives our sins, the appropriate response is to get up and serve him. And I don't want to make too much out of a single pronoun, but I think it's significant when we think about our own lives. How often when, when, when we're feeling horrible or we're dealing with chronic pain or something bad is going on, we, we make a deal with God. And we say, God, if you will just answer this prayer, I'll do all this for you. And when the prayer is answered, well, here's what I really meant by that. And we take our good health, we take our blessing, and we kind of continue to live our own life with our own priorities and our own ends. But when Jesus heals us and blesses us and shows us compassion, as he did to this unnamed woman, do we start serving him even more because of his goodness and his grace toward us? So that's a quick story, but the, the narrative continues in verse 16. It says that that evening, after the sun had gone down, all the people began to bring to him people who were possessed by demons so, and people who were sick. So this city of Capernaum basically shows up on the doorstep in mass. Now, it's not a peaceful protest. It's people coming and asking for help with their ailments. They brought to him those who were demon-possessed, and he, it says he cast out the spirits with a word. Remember how he healed the centurion's servant with a simple word, and now he heals and, and, and casts out demons just with a command. Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. And on top of this, he heals all who were sick. And in both instances, we see Jesus displaying again just incredible grace and compassion to these people. And I think to Matthew, Jesus' compassion is the point. And it's a prophetic compassion. It's a prophetic compassion. What I mean by that is that Jesus' miraculous intervention over the, the spiritual and the physical realm on behalf of these people is a fulfillment of of prophetic promises, of, of Old Testament hopes that line up, it says, with the prophet Isaiah. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, we've seen this idea of prophetic fulfillment throughout the book of Matthew. And, and what I've tried to explain is that there's not like this Checklist that the people of Israel had, this long checklist of things that the Messiah had to do before we would believe he is the Messiah. And then Jesus is just checking off one more thing on the list. Okay, I've, I did that, I did that, okay. I can be the Messiah now. What it is, is is that there's these prophetic hopes, there's these prophetic promises, and the illustration I've used before is like a balloon, like an empty balloon. And those promises were there, but they were empty. And then Jesus comes and he blows air into that balloon, he fills up that balloon. He makes that balloon. He makes those promises. He makes those hopes what they were meant to be. Or it's like there's a, a messianic set of clothes or a suit or something, and it's just sitting there empty, and then Jesus puts on the clothes. He makes them be what they're supposed to be. He fulfills them. He fills them up. And what Isaiah saw and what he was talking about in Isaiah 53, he was prophesying a servant Messiah who would come and compassionately and graciously serve God's people. He wasn't simply going to be a a Messiah who would would fulfill all their national and political dreams, but he would come and take on all their brokenness on himself and make them whole. So if you look at the book of Isaiah, we're not going to study all... 66 or so chapters of Isaiah today. But there are four what are called servant songs towards the end of Isaiah, in chapter 42, 49, 50, and then the fourth and final is the one that Eric read earlier in chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah. And what these were, these servant songs, were poems about Yahweh's promised servant, one who would come and bring light and justice and salvation Now, some, as the Jews read these, they would understand that this was the nation of Israel or perhaps the Messiah. And we today, looking back on these, we go, these are all about Jesus. The text Matthew quotes falls directly then in the middle of the fourth and final, perhaps the well-known servant song, Isaiah 52 and 53. It's verse 4 of Isaiah 53. And it pictures the servant as one who's been despised, one who's been rejected, one who has suffered, who's taken on the sins of his people on his shoulders, and also who's taken their sicknesses for the sake of their salvation. Here's a few more of the verses in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely, it says, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this, this servant song clearly points to the Messiah, Jesus, being one who would come and suffer, and he would suffer as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of his people. This, this Isaiah 52 and 53, this speaks of the cross. It points clearly to the cross. But when Matthew references Isaiah 53:4 here, he's not talking about the cross. He's not talking even about the forgiveness of sins. He's identifying Jesus as not just the suffering servant, but as the compassionate servant. The word compassion literally means with suffering. Suffering with. The servant who comes and suffers with his people. That's who Jesus is. He takes on our physical sufferings, our spiritual sufferings, even our illnesses and our diseases. And so we've hit on something. Matthew hits on something incredibly profound here. And it's the beauty of the incarnation. The what? The what? the incarnation. What's the incarnation? Well, it's a fancy theological word speaking of God becoming flesh, God becoming a man, God taking on a human nature in the person of Christ. And he does so, he becomes a human, not just to die for us, although he dies for us. He takes on our sin as one of us, but not just to die for us, but to walk with us, to be with us to sit with us in our suffering to touch us to show compassion to weep with us the world is broken and fallen and so are we in every aspect of our being sin affects not just our spiritual being but our physical bodies and it's often displayed in, in sickness and illness and chronic disease and pain the sin that has Broken, this world touches us in so many ways. It's experienced in spiritual oppression and uncleanness and addiction and guilt and shame. And into this fallen, broken mess, Jesus comes with all of his grace, with all of his compassion, and he touches us. He notices us. He sits with us. And oftentimes, he heals us. You see, Jesus... Has come to make us whole, to carry our pain, to carry our sorrow, to carry our grief, our diseases, our illnesses, and to take those on himself. And he's chosen to do this, not by remaining up in heaven, but by coming down and becoming one of us, and eventually in this story, taking on death itself in our place. Now, many of you are sick and ailing. And I want you to hear me this morning saying, You have sinned and therefore you're sick. It's the result of a broken, fallen, sinful world that we are sick and ailing. And what I want you to hear from Jesus today is that He knows. He knows about your sickness, He knows about your pain. He sees and He's full of compassion toward you. He may heal you, He may not. Heal you he may not take away the pain or the frustration or the suffering but he does walk with you in every single one of them he helps to carry your burdens your sorrows your grief your illness and your disease so if you hear anything from jesus today hear him saying you are not alone this last week in my DNA group, which is a group of three or four men that meet every week and encourage each other and drink coffee and try to stay awake at seven in the morning, one of the members asked this this morning, which I thought was a profound question. He said, "What do you most look forward to about Jesus coming back?" We kind of batted around the question, and he had, he had his answer. He knew exactly what the answer was. Like, I'm looking forward to there not being any sin. I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good, actually. Not, being any, not even being able to sin, not having any propensity to sin, not thinking about sinning, not wanting to sin, not having sin around you, not having people sin against you. One day, Jesus will completely deal with sin. There will be no sin anymore. But Jesus doesn't just deal with the sin in our heart. He deals with the effects of sin. And Revelation 21 talks about this clearly. Where John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And by the way, that promise was partially fulfilled when Jesus came to be with his people. And he will come again one day and be with them forever. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold I am making all things new. Now, Revelation 21 and 22, picture a wedding. Picture a bride coming down to her bridegroom and a feast. A feast where Jesus will bring many from east and west to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and with the Lamb at a wedding feast in his kingdom where all will be made well and where all that's broken will be made whole, where all that's lost will be found and all that's incomplete will be wrapped up in Jesus. Can you say maranatha with me? Maranatha, you know what that means? Come, Lord, come quickly, come, Lord Jesus. Don't we all look forward to that day when he will make everything whole and sin and pain and suffering will be no more know that he walks with you now and know that one day he will make it all right amen so we walk away this morning with a few takeaways and the first is simply not that sorry i have these out of order there it is we're going to start with number two jesus has not ceased being the great physician And what that means for us is that we have eternal access to an infinitely large storehouse of compassion that is aimed at us, that's directly uh, pointing towards us, that we have the keys and the access to. He has the authority and the ability to heal us and to make us whole. So it's right for us to come and ask him. It's it's right for us to ask for mercy and compassion because in him we have the sure promise and hope that one day all will be made whole and he has the power to make it whole even now. So let's ask, let's come to Jesus as our compassionate savior, our great physician. The third point is the second point. Jesus heals us so that we can serve him. This just goes back to that little illustration of Jesus' mother-in-law being healed and instantly getting up, to serve him from her sickbed. And, and when we receive Jesus' healing touch, whether it would be forgiveness of sins, whether it be encouragement, whether it be freedom from some kind of oppression or addiction or depression, when we come out, have we received Jesus' compassion in such a way that we would respond in thanksgiving and love and a heart of gratitude to serve him? that's the adequate response serve him and then finally the last point is the first point are you an insider or an outsider in other words do you see yourself as having it all together as being kind of on a spiritual pedestal you know i'm in with jesus i've got a great in with him and i'm on the inside and i've got everything figured out and no matter what happens i'm good to go and if you're an insider the question is how do you treat those on the outsiders Do you relish your place and hold on to it against the threat of other people? Do you treat outsiders as Jesus treats them? Do you treat people that are unlovable or unclean or or, or feel like they're just beyond the pale of mercy or grace? Do you treat them as Jesus would treat them with compassion? If you ignore them, how do you think Jesus will eventually treat you? And the point of Jesus coming and saying, hey, the outsiders are going to be inside, they're going to eat at the feast, and then the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast into outer darkness. It's not one of those things where those people want to hang out with Jesus. It's one of those things where they think they have it all together, but in the end, they find out they're on the outside. Let's look and see in our own hearts where we perhaps consider ourselves above others and treat others with the same kind of compassion and grace that jesus does he invites us all to his wedding feast and this morning we have a foretaste of that wedding feast in the form of communion in the form of the lord's supper where jesus the night he was betrayed took the bread of the passover meal that unleavened bread and said this is my body broken for you given for you this is my blood poured out for you and he takes the wine the juice and It says, these things I've given for you to bring you from the outside to the inside to feast with me. So the invitation this morning, if you belong to Jesus, if you put your faith in him, is to come and receive his grace, his mercy, his compassion. Touch it and taste it and remember it and look forward to that day when it will be complete in the kingdom and we will eat with him there forever. Now some of you may be sitting there and saying, I can't. I'm not good enough. I've sinned too much, I've done too much wrong. Jesus could never accept me and I'll tell you, I'll gently correct you that you're wrong there. The grace of God is for you. The grace and compassion of Jesus isn't for those who have it all together. This meal is for sinners. So come and take of the grace of Jesus and be reminded of it once again. I'll invite you to come and the worship team to come and lead us, and let's pray if you would. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the grace, the compassion of Jesus, the one who became flesh, took on flesh, that he might dwell amongst us, point us to the Father, reach out, touch us, take on our sicknesses and our illnesses, our diseases. We would not only do that, but would bear our iniquity, and in this meal, As we remember the gospel, we remember the lamb who has been slain for us, whose blood was poured out to pay for our sins, who took our punishment. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus, you have brought us together as a people, your church. And being made whole, being forgiven, Lord, may we get up and serve you. pray that that would be the impetus of our week, of our lives this week. As we go out, may we be people who take your compassion to everyone we meet. It's in your name we pray. Amen.